battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Uh, Folks, we are in overtime now. Overtime is the second half of the show where we go for a whole whole another hour and a half usually. I think we're going to be cutting it a bit short today. But we go for another hour and a half online only. It's like special bonus content, but it's still free. You can support the show. Help us continue doing this on our website, tvlr.fm. We're going to take a break really quick. We've got a couple of news stories that I wanted to get to in overtime. There was a pregnant worker that was fired in an Auburn GE plant. And I wanted to talk just a bit, just a bit, about, um, about our president, Joe Byron, legalizing marijuana and whether or not and whether or not that's exactly what happened so we're going to take a really quick break we're going to come back with overtime hit a couple of stories really quick and then we'll play this interview with zach that we've got so stay tuned yeah and and just as a preview the interview with zach we are going to talk a little bit about the automotive free clinic in prattville uh as well as some other projects he has in the works Uh, he's got a new podcast coming out but Uh, The second half of the conversation is about the South, the American South and how we stack up uh, across the country and how we relate to the rest of the world, particularly the global South, uh, those imperialized countries. And so if you're at all interested in the South and Southern identity and even, you know, the the identity of a redneck, uh, I think you'll find this conversation interesting. Yep. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Overtime. Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. My name is Jacob Morrison. I am your host. My co-host is Adam Keller. Hey, folks. We always appreciate folks in the chat watching us live. We've got Mel Sutton in the Facebook chat and Mark Brooks. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm sure we've got Joe out there. Um, and Mel, I appreciate you um, jogging my memory about that question that you wanted asked about the two-two wage wage structure. I had totally forgotten about that, but that is a that's a very interesting that's a very interesting thing that they don't have the two-tier there. I wonder yeah. if is it? I wonder what the industry standard in the paper mill industry is right now as far as two-tier goes. Yeah, that would be a good thing to find out. And I know you're working on more reporting mm-hmm. on that issue. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely appreciate Mel's question there, because I think certainly with the the time premiums that you discussed, that contract language, that's a historic victory right? Uh, that they're trying to hold on to mm-hmm. that other folks have lost. And with the two, t- two tiers, that's a defeat that so many other industries and unions have suffered that they have yet to to experience. Yeah. But you know what? I have talked to a lot of people in the paper industry uh, reporting on this. And I have just not heard, and you know, Mel, Mel, you and I can talk offline about this, but I have not heard anything about two tiers from anybody in the paper industry. So I wonder if I don't know. Maybe I, it just I hasn't if it, if, made if, it, infected it. Yeah. Yet. Um, yeah. So I don't know. In the YouTube chat, Austin says, "Howdy, everyone." Infinite content says, "Good morning." We appreciate y'all. Marissa Allison mentions that strippers from the Star Garden topless dive bar in L.A. have been granted a union election by the NLRB. Incredibly cool stuff. I knew they were working on it. I didn't know mm-hmm. that they uh, had officially gotten the election schedule. Yeah, That's awesome. I, I- saw that uh, last week, I think. And Kim Kelly has been doing some good reporting on that. Uh, she's got a good section in her book, about a uh, chapter about sex workers broadly defined that Adam mentioned in the chat. Um, Infinite Content also says that the workers at the Philadelphia Museum of Art are also on strike. They've been um, on strike for quite strike. some time. Yeah. yeah, for quite some time. And the Philadelphia Museum of Art is doing some fancy 
fundraising stuff with these scabs. It's crazy. That's disgusting. Jared says, couple of when talking when we were talking about the troublemaker school, Jared says that there's going to be a couple folks from the engineering association at NASA, the IFPTE Local 27, including their new VP, which is Jared. Congratulations, Jared. Oh, yeah. We need to get we need to get a soundboard. I need to get myself like a soundboard or something to put here so I can have like a maybe like a shofar like they do on the majority. Yeah, of the every time one like, of our listeners wins union office. Yeah. Folks are taking over. <laughs> yeah. Um but that's really awesome. Uh really uh happy for you, Jared. Yeah, Gonna do absolutely. great things. He said he's trying to get some folks from North Alabama DSA and Love Huntsville. Um, so, uh, down to the troublemaker school. So that's going to be great. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, uh, infinite content says when I was talking about talking to Bobby about those shifts, that those are insane and that they are indeed insane. Um, it's crazy. Infinite content also asks if Teamsters transport materials to the plant. And I don't know about materials, but UPS drivers with the Teamsters do deliver material to the plant. And they said that they will not. Teamsters Local 612 down there, representing UPS workers in that area, have said they will not cross the picket line. That's very cool. There have been some uh, building trades contractors that have said they will not cross the picket line. That's very cool. And there have been some building trades contractors that are unionized quote unquote that are crossing the picket line so that's another thing that i'm going to be trying to dig more into as i do more reporting about this because that is not cool to say the least not cool at all to say the least uh infinite content asks how is osha and the state's department of labor not investigating all these locations and jared mentions that uh state level dols especially in red state are highly unlikely to pursue things not affecting companies bottom lines osha is notoriously starved of any reasonable budget and ron asks if terry cruz is still working for amazon uh totally agree jared and ron i'm not sure regulatory capture um is the name of the game especially in a place like alabama but i absolutely agree um when you have two fires in the exact same location what a week or two apart yeah there got there should be an investigation there should be outside investigation um maybe something for the attorney general i know yeah he's he's uh He's always eager to get on TV and get on get on the news cycle. Uh, yeah. He could try actually investigating something legitimate right. for a change. Right. So let's talk about this pregnant worker in Auburn, uh, Brinetta Talley. Brinetta Talley is 31 years old. She has worked, and I'm I'm reading this from these al.com broke this story. The reporter is Sarah Swetlick. She did a really good job. I would recommend reading this article by Sarah Swetlick. In AL.com, the title is Pregnant Woman Files Unfair Labor Charge Against GE Auburn Plant. Quote, it was just awful. So, um, And I also want to mention John Glenn, friend of the show, who's been doing some great reporting on the prison strike. He had an article come out as well, uh, I believe, the next day. Oh, and cool. he talked about a separate worker who was also terminated. No uh, kidding. Not a f- not a pregnant woman, um, just a guy, <laughs> but he, he uh, is a pro-union guy who yeah. was also fired, um, supposedly for his pro-union stance. So I'm um, glad to see both AL Reporter and AL.com covering yeah. this story out of Auburn. Yeah, Sarah Swetlick did a really good job in AL.com. And so uh, and, and I, I didn't even I'm, I'm going to I'm going to have to look at that AL Reporter piece. But this Brinetta Talley is 31 and Sarah said in her article that Brenetta said she worked at this Auburn plant for six years. For six years, and she won five awards during her employment. Yeah. For her performance, you know, because she was so good at her job. Um, and she, uh, and, and so she, when this union campaign started, uh, you know, back in April, and then they formally announced about a, a couple of months ago, she was public about her union support and she says this feel, she felt like that made her a prime target and so her job requires her to lift 50 to 60 pounds at various times throughout the day and that's a lot right i mean that's that's not something to sniff at lifting 50 60 pounds especially if you're doing that repeatedly throughout the day right 
And after she told her employer she was pregnant, she was denied opportunities for lighter assignments, which is clearly a violation of, you know, anti-discrimination laws in the United States at the federal level. The ADA violations there uh, are clear. And, 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 you know, because she's because she's pregnant, right? You're not supposed to be doing this extremely strenuous activity while you're pregnant. And something that was reported in John Glenn's piece is that uh, in the plant, it's very common to transfer departments. Mm. Um, and they were specifically speaking about the situation with Tyrone Dawkins, who was a second worker terminated for his pro-union stance. But um, employees there reported that, you know, they couldn't think of another instance where an employee was not allowed to transfer to a different department. It's so it's, it's, you know, it's something that it's not an ask that's unheard of. Uh, it's a common practice that folks would go right. from department to, to department. And so the fact that in the case of this uh, Miss Tally, she's pregnant. She's she needs some reasonable accommodations, which mm-hmm. could easily be met uh, with some uh, different assignment. Yeah. In the case of uh, Tyrone Dawkins, it was an issue where um he he like passed with flying colors the performance test um on some areas but then they wanted to uh stick him in a department where he had not done so well Mm. and rather than give him the training or a transfer they used it as justification for termination Mm. and like and not only is it did you mention that it's common that people transfer departments. And so both of these things could be done could have been done for both of these people. Like not everyone. Right. So in the case of Tyrone, not everyone can do every job. If he aced performance tests, why would you not put him in the in the part of the facility where he was where he was in, where where he was excelling? Right. Like if that you know, if I'm if I'm getting in the mind of a rational, self-interested libertarian capitalist, right? And I'm trying to you know, I'm trying to think of the most rational thing to do. Uh I want workers in places where they will be the best fit and can make the most money for me. Right. Where will they be most productive? Um, and they didn't do that for Tyrone. And then also... They didn't do it for Miss Tally either, right? Because, right. I mean, common sense would tell you, um, if I have all these different positions, mm-hmm. why would I find the one involving lifting 60-pound bags all day for the pregnant lady? Right. And so she said, and you know, so not only it's common for people to change departments, but there are also part of these, some of these departments have light duty options. Not all, sure. not all of the jobs in this facility require you to lift 60 pounds several right. times a day. And so there's clearly places for her to go. And she said that, you know, she didn't know, she was never given a reason why they were refusing to accommodate her, um, or anything like that. And that, uh, that, that eventually, she was uh, uh, that she was suspended for this. She was terminated, and she feels like the only way to explain this is because of her union support. So she filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. Um, the union is file is you know supporting her in this. GE did not. <laughs> uh, uh, GE here's what GE said to AL.com. GE is proud to employ more than 230 people at our Auburn facility where we are committed to providing and upholding equal opportunity for all our employees. Mm. We have zero tolerance for unlawful discrimination or retaliation of any kind and have a strong record of working with all employees across our global facilities regardless of representational status. I mean, what a load of, what a load of horse crap. Yeah, I wonder how much they paid a lawyer to write that. Couple hundred bucks, probably. Write that paragraph. Yeah, it's insane, insane stuff. And you know, this is. And we were talking to Bobby. You know, this just goes to the, the depravity of the people at the top of our society. Just really the the depraved, the lack of morals, the lack of a conscience. They're souls have been rotted well i think power 
views, you know, the old saying that power corrupts. I think that's a truism, and, and mm-hmm. I think that's um, easily discernible when you look at our economy and the way right. employers have a hierarchical relationship with employees. And, you know, like you said, if you were just being totally self-interested and rational, you would accommodate these workers because it would actually be better for you as the capitalist um, for the running of the facility. But they're not necessarily thinking in that manner. They're thinking of protecting their power and um, keeping these folks squashed um, below their boot. And so that's that that is one of the most frustrating things you see is because uh you know of course when you you go to school you're taught econ 101 it's all supply and demand capitalists act out of their own rational self-interest to maximize profits um but that is not the case that is not the case uh and you see time after time after time it's not always just about the money um it's not about the money in the paper mill issue it's about time um, oftentimes it's about respect it's about yeah. having input having a voice and um, employers in some cases are willing to lose money to prevent giving up any ground on those areas yeah and i think what bobby was talking about is there's some truth to that. I mean, businesses have always acted like businesses. Bosses are always mm-hmm. bosses. Um, but I think there is less and less space these days for businesses to try to be accommodating to workers. Right. Uh, now, well, I mean, I would say maybe that's changing now because of the resurgent labor movement, but that's not, you know, bosses acting... Um, altruistically that's them sensing the tea leaves and right 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 um, trying to provide benefits and pay in order to stave off union drives or to Mm -hmm. um, minimize any kind of organizing but right i did want to mention this that the al.com article before we go on to the to the next thing but uh because it's uh i meant to mention it earlier and 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 i just overlooked it but um sarah swetlick points out that Quote, Alabama has no state-specific protections <clears throat> against pregnancy discrimination, so employers must defer to federal guidelines. But in 2022, Representative Neil Rafferty, Democrat from Birmingham, introduced the Alabama Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, but it did not move past committee. So here we, we had a Democrat that was trying to pass protections for pregnant workers in the state of Alabama, in an environment where uh, soon Roe versus Wade would be overturned at the behest of people who would say they're pro-life, quote-unquote. And why are they pro-life? What does that mean? That means that they reckon, presumably, you know, some of them are probably just lying to you, but but some of them really believe that, that a fetus has the same moral worth as a fully grown human being and more moral worth and and, and is worthy of more moral consideration than than uh you know the person carrying the fetus right and so if it was really actually a principled position that you had that was i want to protect fetuses at all costs uh it would seem that a law protecting pregnant workers from discrimination in the workplace, a law saying that employers have to accommodate workers who have who are pregnant. They have to accommodate them. And if there are is if there is such a thing or such a thing that can be created as a light duty assignment that you will be able to perform safely as a pregnant worker, you have to do that as an employer. You would think, you would think if you were somebody dedicated to the preservation of fetuses that and, and their health, this would be something that you would support. But that law, right. that bill, did not even make it out of committee. Right. Didn't even make it out of committee. Who controls the committee? The Republicans. And well, so, you know, look, it's... Republicans do love fetuses, but they love employers a hell of a lot more. They love employers more, and mostly they love fetuses when they can protect them by controlling women. 
Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you're exactly right, and that's I mean that's but, that's right yeah. on. A pregnant and, workers' fairness right. protection, like that's if you're in the mood to protect right. the fetus, uh, one might consider that uh, as maybe relevant. Right. 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 And and you know this is something that you know there are differences, right? And we we will we are we are more than happy to criticize Democrats, and we do it a lot. And, and we don't talk about, you know, what are Republicans doing? What are Democrats doing? But when issues like this come up in stories and they're so, uh, you know, you would have to, this basically, this is a really great context from Sarah that she puts in this article. Yeah, I'm glad she mentioned it. And it, it punches you in the face, right? In this environment that we're in. And you would have to be, you would have to be foolish not to notice it. And so, so you know, it's important. It's important that Sarah points this out, and and I want to make sure that we point it out on our program because there there are differences, and you know, those are important to understand as we go into the ballot booth a month from today on November eighth. The next story is that, um, and this is something I spoke to Dale Jackson on Friday uh, about Friday morning, and he is absolutely apoplectic that Joe Biden uh, is not letting a single person out of jail. <laughs> he pardoned 6,500 people who were convicted of simple possession of marijuana at the federal level. Um, and none of those people are in jail currently. There's nobody currently serving time for simple possession of marijuana in federal prisons. Right. So there was nobody let out of jail for this. This is just basically expunging records. And, which is good. Which is good. Which is good. This is going to these sixty five hundred people, which is a very small group of people, but these sixty five hundred group, these sixty five hundred people, this will be a life changing. Like their lives were changed for the better at the stroke of a pen. Right. And, and really, that's no not, one harmed. Nobody harmed, and that's worth understanding, and that's worth recognizing. Right. But it's also worth understanding that nobody was let out of prison right. for this. Um, we can appreciate that it's a mostly symbolic move. Right. So they um, and, and he did that. And then after that, he said uh, that he asked some department secretary to look into maybe rescheduling marijuana. At yeah, the federal they're going to they're going to look into beginning the, the process of reviewing uh, <laughs> the policy. And uh, apparently they're going to take a lot of time with this um uh, means morning news had a great segment this week uh, i guess it was yesterday um where they quoted the administration being very clear that they're going to take their time mm. so this isn't like presumably they're not going to reschedule marijuana before election day a month right. from today that's right. what i interpreted uh they could absolutely could um, should have been done a long time ago. It's absolutely um, disgusting that marijuana is a Schedule One substance, uh, right up there with heroin. Heroin. Um, I it's mean, insane. in some ways, uh, you know, crystal meth and and fentanyl and heroin um, have less or, or have more legality because those can still be. Right. Uh, those can still Obtained, be prescribed, yeah. Uh, as prescriptions, um, legally, whereas while we do have medical marijuana in, the, in various states, multiple states now, it's still federally illegal. Um, I think on like, if I put it on my political hat, it's a very good move for the Democrats. Um, as with any good move with the Democrats, it's more show than substance. And, right. uh they're going to drag their feet. They're going to let stuff slip through the cracks, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a, there is a smart political calculus, I think, to moving towards decriminalization of marijuana uh, mm -hmm. in the lead up to these runoffs because it is overwhelmingly popular, um, including with Republicans. And this is absolutely a worker's issue because who is it that gets convicted of possession right. or sale Elon or Musk can be right. on camera and smoke a joint yes! and he's gonna no one's gonna like follow him home right no one's gonna they, search his car yeah they can smoke marijuana literally on camera 
They can do cocaine bumps in their hotel rooms at their crazy parties. All these rich people, the bosses, the politicians. Madison Cawthorn was absolutely bodied after he came out talking about politicians doing cocaine orgies in D.C. And look what happened to him, right? So, and I, that may have been one of the only uh, halfway factual things he ever right. said. And so, you know, look, this is, th- this is not an issue that affects bosses and politicians. This is an issue that affects working people and working people particularly, only. Particularly black and brown working right. people. We, I mean, the facts are very clear that marijuana has been enforced in a discriminatory manner. All, all aspects of marijuana prohibition. And... You know, something to point out, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but um, as we slowly but surely transition into a like post-prohibition era, uh, I think it's important that these laws be reshaped in a way that does help working people and that these industries be legalized and regulated in a way that helps working people. Uh, what I don't want to see and what I think is from what I understand is happening in some places already where it is legal is, you know, the hedge funds and the other mm. corporate crooks that run every other industry getting their, their hands in it. Right. And I, I personally, I, I was very impressed with Bernie Sanders, uh, marijuana policies, uh, during this 2020 run that he had. I don't know if those are still out there somewhere on the web. I'm sure they are. Uh, but one of the things he talked about was, using the process of marijuana legalization and ending prohibition as a way to bring reparation to the communities that have been harmed by these policies Mm -hmm. uh, and to have a more bottom-up approach um, to this new industry. There's nothing stopping us from having worker-farmer co-ops. Right. Yeah, I mean, the first people people that should be given grants to open, you know, pot shops should be people – who are getting out of prison for you know for distributing pot, like and, 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 and they've got experience in the industry, right? right so. And of course, <laughs> we know for a place like Alabama, that'd probably be the exact opposite approach uh, right. of what's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be people like John Boehner. It's going to uh, yeah, it's going to be the same yeah. you know handful of wealthy farming families uh, that that run your local con- county commission. Mm-hmm. That's probably who's going to get the contracts. But yeah. all that said, anyone who who in the year of our Lord, 2022, believes that someone should be arrested and and put in handcuffs for consuming marijuana is an authoritarian and probably batshit. Yep. All right, we're going to go to this interview that Adam did with Zach Hyden about the Automotive Free Clinic, about the South, about the Global South, wide-ranging interview, some good stuff. So, Adam, let's go ahead and play that. Sure thing. All right. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show, where we strive for news and analysis of, by, and for working class people in the South. My name is Adam Keller, and here with me is our next guest, Zach. Zach has previously appeared on the show to discuss his work with the Automotive Free Clinic in the Montgomery area. And Zach is back to update us on his uh, projects, including the free clinic and and some new ones he's got in the works and for a broader conversation on the American South. So Zach, thanks for joining me on the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, Like you said, my name is Dr. Zach Hyden. I'm the executive director of the Automotive Free Clinic, which is a free and low cost uh, automotive repair shop in Prattville, Alabama. Um, the way we work is we uh, charge parts at commercial cost. We don't mark up the parts, which saves about 45%. And uh, labor is a donation base, so you don't have to pay labor. And we keep ourselves afloat with individual grants and donations. So if you would like to make a donation to the cause, um, we can sure use it. Um, go to automotivefreeclinic.org and click on how can I help Uh the Automotive Free Clinic has been in business for over two and a half years. We've repaired uh, 230 or 240 cars. I lo- don't know That's exactly awesome. how many thus far. It's it, it's really a small number of cars compared to what a production shop does. But I probably do, as a small nonprofit, I probably do 75% of the work myself. 
and uh, it's about as it's about at the capacity that um, I could handle at this point in time. When you talk about you know keeping the books, um, marketing, so on and so forth, right? It's, it's we're open three days a week. We're open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and uh, you know I, I think we've done pretty well. We would like to get some more money and expand our operations, but you know that's for future plans. So. We also have started a network of solidarity economy organizations, which solidarity economy is basically means businesses that are for the people. And uh, that network is called the Educational and Economic uh, Resource Organizing Network. And we have the Habitual B, which is an urban apiary, apiary in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, popular education summer camp in the Alabama Appalachians and a hometown organizing project, which is organizing a farmer's market in Camp Hill, Alabama. So we got four organizations in that network. I think we're about to add a farming operation in Birmingham, but that's not really in the planning stages right now. So that's uh, fantastic. That's a, Could you uh, yeah, tell, tell us the name of that as again, the, the network? Uh, the economic educational and economic resource organizing network. And, uh, you know, we're, we're businesses. Some of us are trying to, uh, some of us are nonprofits. Some of us are LLCs. We're trying to start some cooperatives. Um, and, uh, it's just about businesses that are primarily about serving the people and not about making gobs and gobs of profit though. We do want to support ourselves. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not a, uh, we're not completely selfless. We do want to support ourselves, but you know, we're trying to, you know, whether it be food and agriculture, or education, or uh, automotive repair, we're businesses that um, meet the needs of the people. Absolutely, and and one of the things we we love to talk about on the show is cooperatives, and so I think that's fantastic to see that kind of network growing, and. Um, before we move on to some of your other projects, could you tell us, you know, what motivated you to to get involved with the Automotive Free Clinic and and take some leadership there? And, um, you know, what's been the how, how has it felt to do this work? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a community organizer for about 20 years. Um, I started as a student organizer at Auburn and I was when I was getting my Ph.D. at Berkeley, I was. Uh, a, a local organizer there a bit, not as much in Berkeley as I did at Auburn. And then my dissertation research centered around urban agriculture in Birmingham, Alabama. And as a part of my dissertation research, I started Magic City Agriculture Project, which was which was an anti-racist and community development organization in, uh, in Birmingham. And uh, we uh, did that for about eight years. Um, we started a number of different organizations. I think one of the organizations that grew out of that was Dynamite Hill Smithfield Community Land Trust. Another organization that grew out of that is Sweet Alabama. So these are st still existing organizations in Birmingham. My wife ended up getting a job at Alabama Rise as the executive director in Montgomery, and I left Birmingham in 2018. I was real burnout, real burnout. I was burnt to the ground. And uh, I got out of organizing for a couple of years, and I went back into the automotive industry and uh, which I was an automotive technician before I went to college between the ages of 18 and 23. And uh, got back in the automotive industry, worked at a local dealer, the pandemic hit. And I was like, man, I got all these skills and I got all these leadership, this leadership training. And so many people have invested time and money into me to get me that PhD and to teach me the things I needed to know in order to be a good leader. And I mean, you're talking, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people who have invested at least some time in me. Right. And, uh, you know, I felt a responsibility to them with the pandemic hitting to do something to help the community. So I got together with people that I knew and we decided to start the automotive free clinic. I love the work. I love working on cars. Um, and I love the we're, we're a dual power organization, which means that we work on material and cultural levels and uh, the material levels is obviously working on cars. But we also have something to say about politics and culture in the broader world. And uh, 
we have a substack called Meconomist where we talk about the American South, where we talk about economics, we talk about identity politics, we talk about just about anything you can imagine in movement politics. So we engage on two levels, the cultural and the material level, and we're launching a podcast um, called The Red Viper, um, which is sort of an evolution of our blog and social media engagements. Uh, We're launching that podcast, I think it's going to be this week, but it might be next week. Oh, that's great. And, you know, one of the things that I like about what y'all are doing with the free clinic is, is that dual power aspect to it. Um, You have skills in politics and you have skills in automotive repair and and you're putting the two together. And I think that's fantastic. And I think that kind of mutual aid efforts where we're utilizing the talents and skills that we already have, Mm -hmm. uh, but putting them in a more organized direction to sort of sync up with the broader needs of the community. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think we need a lot more of that. Uh, and that's part of the reason I wanted to to talk to you today and, and kind of highlight that work you're doing. So you mentioned you have a new podcast coming out sometime this month uh, in October. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the podcast is called The Red Viper. And it's uh, the subtitle is A Black Trans Woman and a Redneck theorize the apocalypse <laughs> now and, uh, that'll that'll suck you in right there yeah yeah and uh you know it goes to what you were saying um we sort of see that um global institutions are teetering if not collapsing right now and the pandemic showed us that um they were not able to meet the needs of the people and we want to highlight how those institutions are failing us with the podcast, but we also want to talk about what we could do as people mm-hmm. on the ground to build new institutions that actually do serve the community. And uh, with climate change and the threat of nuclear war, uh, it's a bleak world that we live in, um, especially if you look at things globally. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's really important for um, activists, organizers, and just regular people to think about what kind of world we want to live in in the future, who controls it, and uh, who, you know, who provides the services that we need. And, you know, I don't think we can trust the government, and I don't think we can trust most businesses to provide those services in a way that w- actually meets the needs of the people. And, you know, that's that's kind of where the podcast is going. The first podcast, episode zero, we just talk about who we are. But episode right. two, which should be out into October 1st of November, is going to be popular education and art. So we're going to talk about how, you know, basically how we communicate with people and what we think is important. And and it, it, what we, we sort of are saying what we thought was important in the first podcast. But the second podcast is about our values and how we communicate with people. So uh, that's a brief synopsis of it. Um, it's in its early, early stages. Um, the other co-host is uh, Zora Tran, and she's a really, 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 really brilliant person who, had, who, despite only being 23 years old, has a wealth of experience in activism and organizing and has made mistakes like I have. Mm-hmm and learn from those mistakes, even at her young age. And, you know, I, I really value what she has to say. And uh, I think it's important that, you know, people like me, rednecks like me, white working class Southerners, have conversations with black trans women because they always try to put us on opposite sides of the fence. Right. And uh, we're not. We're not on opposite sides of the fence. We want the same type of things. And uh Zora and I have different styles. Zora has a more heady style than I do. I have a more grounded style, but we're talking about a lot of the same things. Well, I think that sounds really interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to checking out the popular education discussion um, because obviously that's some of what we're doing here on the Valley Labor Report is trying to sure. educate folks and, and talk to them about uh, issues relevant to working class people and of course, specifically how to organize in workplaces and, and build a labor movement that can start to address those needs that you're discussing that, you know, governments and, and businesses simply aren't meeting. And, you know, I, I agree with you. If you look at the future, it doesn't look 
too promising, uh, the, the path that we're on right now. And so the more that we can build people power uh, in whatever capacity we can, whether that's through unions in the workplace or through mutual aid networks in the community, I think they all have to work hand in hand. Um, Agreed. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's that's one of the reasons why we, we want to, even though we are a labor union show, um, we want to continually to have these these dialogues about uh, mutual aid and about solidarity networks and just other ways that we can shift the balance of power in our communities. And uh, the last project that I wanted to make sure I mentioned before we pivot uh, it's the Redneck Studies Fellowship. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because uh, the, the name alone is definitely intriguing. Yeah, we got a small grant from Solve, um, which is a voter engagement uh, program to do the Redneck Studies Fellowship. And what we're going to explore is the South as an internal colony of the United States and what that means for the people of the South. Um, we have an approach that sort of slices through the traditional stupid um, arguments about the Civil War. You know, is the war of Northern aggression, is the war over slavery. It's like these are tired discussions and they need to be sort of solved to begin with. And, you know, one of our arguments is, is that it's both. Um, the Civil War was an intra-colonial battle between Northern colonists and the planters in the South who were essentially colonial administrators for the Northern colonists. And that war was over the planters' competitive advantage of slavery or uh, completely free labor. So instead of you know, us rednecks identifying with the Confederacy, we need to see the Confederacy for what it is and what it was, which is uh, uh, a nation of wealthy planters who controlled labor and basically everything about the South with an iron fist and that, you know, we should not identify with the Confederacy, but we should identify as workers and um, you know, the, 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 the Civil War was not a battle that the white working class should have ever been fighting because we had no stake in it. Um, it was a war between, like I said, the, co the northern colonists who were not the great liberators and the southern planters who were essentially colonial administrators. Now, there's another interpretation of the Civil War that I think is valid and that I think is parallel, and that's W.E.B. Du Bois's interpretation of the Civil War, that the Civil War was a black proletarian revolution. So these two histories can go side by side and say, hey, people in the South, we, we can have solidarity around what the Civil War was about, and we don't have to identify with colonial administrators or colonists, Yankee colonists in the North. Yeah, I think that's a uh, perfect segue to to have a broader conversation about the South. And, and a lot of what you just said resonated with me and um, just the very idea of, of dissecting the word redneck, uh, frankly, resonates. Um, I'm a lifelong Southerner. Uh, I know my co-host Jacob is. I believe you are as well. Um, yep. And just, you know, the word redneck brings up a lot of thoughts and experiences for me in terms of my own relationship with, you know, Southern identity, so to speak. Um, like a lot of Southern white boys, you know, I grew up with uh, my Confederate flag paraphernalia and, and um, you know, certainly at various points would have proudly proclaimed myself a redneck, been called a redneck as a slur as well. You know, the whole gamut of those experiences and uh, I think there's a lot to dissect when it comes to the South. We're, we're, we are a unique region in this country. And this being a labor movement show, of course, we've talked a lot about the challenges to organizing in the South, some of the unique challenges and some that um, are not so unique, but maybe are more uh, pronounced here in some ways. And, and those run the gamut from hostile laws and governments to uh, entrenched social divisions to chronic underdevelopment. And, and all of those have played a role in the labor movement 
you know, having some struggles to gain success across the South, you know, in the past and the present. Um, and really the Southern working class more broadly struggles, uh, struggles deeply. Um, when, when we compare the quality of life and the material conditions for working class people in the South to the rest of the country, or even to most of the developed world, um, we're, we're lagging behind. And I think those, those are all important things to consider when we talk about, you know, building a movement in the South and certainly in Alabama. So we've talked a little bit uh, on our show previously, and you've, you mentioned it uh, already today about some of the ways that the South, places like Alabama, function as internal colonies to be hyper-exploited. And something we've also talked about on the show is, is economic development in the South. You know, what that typically looks like is our politicians groveling, you know, underneath multinational capitalists, uh, attempting to lure them here with generous subsidies, little to no taxes, minimal worker and environmental protections, low wages, low union density. And for this, we as everyday people, working class people, we're supposed to be grateful. You know, we're supposed to be thankful for this job creation. Um, so with all that preamble out of the way, I, I wanted to turn it over to you to kind of expand on, on that in terms of the South and and how does the South relate to the rest of the world? Um, and, and certainly how does it relate to the rest of the country? Sure. Um, so two, two things to begin with. I want to say that we use the word redneck. We know that it means white working class Southerner, but we use it aspirationally to indicate all workers of the American and global South, which we combined to call the deep south um if you look at our economy the most profitable industry in profitable not the biggest but the most profitable industry in alabama is timber our only billionaire jimmy rain is a timber baron mm -hmm. and that is a completely extractive um and export oriented economy 60 percent right of all timberland in Alabama is absentee owned. So we don't own the wealth. The rednecks, rednecks in Appalachia, black people in the black belt, where the timber is, you know, something like 70% of Alabama is timberland. We don't own the wealth. We're in the same condition, whether you're a, a, you know, a white person in Appalachia or a black person in the black belt, where the timber is, we're in the same situation. We don't own the wealth. Now that is no different from Mexico or Paraguay or Laos or, you know, Uganda or any other global South, what's often called third world country, that is the way their economies are organized. Now, some of these economies are organized around the extraction of labor, which is what the auto industry is doing. It's coming down here looking for cheap labor and extracting labor. Where else are Fords and Nissans and Toyotas and Hondas built? Well, Mexico, the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same model economy in the American South as it is in the global South. We put these two together. We call it the deep South. And we say, we want everybody in the deep South to identify as a redneck or a worker in resistance. Mm -hmm. Now there is historical precedent for this. Um, the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921 was a diverse resistance of miners to the federal government and the Pinkertons. And it was the second instance in American history of aerial bombing of American soil. The first instance was two, week, uh, two weeks earlier in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the American government bombed Black Wall Street. So you see what they do to black people they eventually do to Appalachia. So what we really want to see, we want the term redneck to mean and for us to understand ourselves as a colonized subject, right? So there's the material stuff that I've been talking about that is that tells us that we're a colonized subject. Well, what about the subjective or cultural parts that tell us we're a colonized subject as well? And 
you have to look no further than a film that is in the Library of Congress as historically, aesthetically, and culturally significant, and that film is Deliverance, in which it shows a redneck raping a suburban white man in the forest. And rednecks are either defined as sexually deviant and violent or simple. In in that film, they're either defined as sexually deviant and violent or simple and basic. This is a common theme in media. If you watch like ring commercials, the doorbell with the camera on it, you watch like ring commercials. In the 80s and 90s, in the you know some of the 2000s it was a black person who would have been the thief on the ring commercial now if you the ring commercial it's going to be a redneck who's the thief on the ring commercial so they're giving us these messages to tell us that we're lesser less than human and they do that so that they can justify exploiting our resources and taking our wealth and land yeah i i I think that's something that um, is lost lost a lot in conversations about the South, and and you see um, a lot of times from from liberals uh, who you know will write off the South. You know, uh, it's pretty common to see tropes from liberal corners about you know we should just let the South succeed again, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when when hurricanes and natural disasters hit the South. There's some condescension there of, oh, you know, these red states and you know, this is what they deserve. Or oh, I bet you they'll, they'll line up for their socialist FEMA handouts now. And, and all those things, I think, um, confuses the ruling structures of the South with the people of the South. Exactly. I, I, I want to ask you a question. What percentage of Alabamians voted for Donald Trump? That's a good question. Let's see. It was what? About 60% of those who actually voted, uh, which I guess would have been maybe what? 60% or less turnout overall. So we're talking what? Maybe a quarter of the population, if that. 37% and uh, 38% of voting eligible Alabamians did not vote. So more people in Alabama did not vote or voted for Joe Biden than voted for Donald Trump. Right. So this this red state, blue state crap is propaganda designed to pit us against each other and make sure that we never get on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's some, something that we try to focus on on this show to, to cut beyond the partisanship, uh, because ultimately we have to be looking at the society around us as as working people and as fellow working people and how we relate to power in, in our community, how we relate to the economy. Um and that cuts far beyond the partisanship that is, you know, basically a spectacle in corporate media to be consumed. It's it's a and, you know, the, not to get too off topic here, but there's I, I found it interesting over the years. You've seen like this convergence of, you know, the CNNs and Fox News, the corporate media cycles with sports and entertainment um, mm-hmm. And they all kind of like look alike now. They all basically talk about some of the same stuff. Um, and it's all just one giant spectacle. And, and I think that's why it's important to to get back to the roots uh, of who has power, who has wealth. Where's the wealth come from? Where's it going? Um, because it's easy to get lost in, in a lot of spectacle unless you are in touch with you know, those, those material realities that we're experiencing as folks uh, living here in Alabama and across the South. So, yeah. And I, I, I think that, uh, you know, there, the South is the most diverse region in the United States, but we're all Southerners. We all like our green sloppy and our mm-hmm. chicken. And it don't matter if you're black, white or Latino, we all like this stuff. And yeah. we have, there are differences in our cultures that are important that we need to celebrate and not fight over. There are differences in our culture that are important that we need to celebrate and not fight over. But there are also a lot of similarities in our cultures because we have working class cultures. And there's similarities in cultures, in working class cultures all over the world. Folk music, for instance. 
you know, we're talking about the same stuff. You know, the blues and bluegrass came from the same place. Um, you know, and every culture has some sort of folk, folk music, which comes from the struggles of the common people. And, you know, I think we need to recognize our differences and celebrate them, but also recognize where we're, we've got things in common and bond around those things. Absolutely. And, and that's where, you know, those shared struggles can be so powerful. The, the relationships forged in struggle uh, can be so powerful. And that's, to me, one of the most promising things about unions and the labor movement is its ability to bring people together across all these divisions, you know, some of which are real and some of which are, are propped up and artificial. Um, and I think we've seen throughout the history of Alabama a, a real radical history of people coming together across race, across gender, religion, uh, and other divisions. We've seen people come together to fight back against the elites in control, and we've seen them come together to fight for their common interest, um, whether that's through labor organizing or through other organizing. I mean, Alabama is, the civil rights movement in Alabama changed the world. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't just the Bull Connors of the world. Uh, you also had a mass movement on the other side fighting for a better world. And I think that's something that uh, it's it's easy for folks, especially outside the South, to write us all off as, as bigots and uneducated and um, reactionaries. And we have our share of those like everybody else does. Um, they disproportionately hold power uh, down here. But there's there's a whole beautiful history of, of Alabama and the South um, where ordinary working class people come together and fight for a better future and a better community. And I think that's the story we have to keep highlighting. And I think we're seeing it right now with workers organizing and Birmingham Starbucks and um, workers holding the line over 500 days on strike in Brookwood workers trying to take on the, the most powerful corporation in the world and, and Amazon at the Bessemer warehouse. So you know, those stories are out there and it's it's a matter of us, uh, yeah, you know, remembering what we do have in common and how we can really help each other um, because there's strength in numbers when we come together. And, and we do have those differences, as you mentioned, uh, but that can, that can that can make us stronger by bringing in these diverse perspectives and experiences that we all have. We all chip in our piece to the puzzle. You know, I think. I think the story we need that needs to be told that's not told enough is the story of the populist movement in the 1880s and the 1890s. Oh yes, which, which was about labor organizing. It was black and white working class, and it was so powerful that uh, the planters and the industrialists had to steal all of the elections, leading them to create the 1901 Redeemer Constitution, which would break the back of the populist movement using white supremacy and lay the groundwork for Jim and Jane Crow uh, in the 1920s. And, you know, that movement was so powerful that it brought forth a new constitution. Mm. Um, and I think we need to tell that story. And it's not told. That's the thing. That story about Alabama and about the South, because the populist movement was Southwide, that story is not told because it's a threat to the powerful. It's a real threat to the powerful to be able to say, hey, look, black and white people got on the same page and they, for all intents and purposes, won, but it was stolen from them. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was, you know, on my mind as I was trying to think of, of some of the struggles throughout our history. And uh, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's clear that, you know, we won the governorship back then and they cheated. Uh, and that's a common theme in Alabama and Southern history is uh, what they fear the most is when working class people can unite across race and across other differences and they will cheat and lie and steal uh, whenever and however they can to smash that unity. Uh, they fear that unity. 
but we have enough examples throughout our history where that unity has happened and, and the potential that is there. Uh, and I think that's something that, um, that continues to inspire me as, as hard as it is sometimes in the South to, uh, to keep going uh, against such odds. There's such p- potential here. And, and as the, we have a, a huge array of natural wealth here, we have, uh, people who are hardworking, people who are diverse. And the moment we ever all, you know, can come together uh, along our common interest as working class people, we can really, we could reshape this state and it could be something beautiful. And you speak of, uh, I want to get back a little bit to what we were talking about before you speak of the governorship being stolen. Mm-hmm. Have has have any of us ever heard a story of a global south leadership a global south country's leadership being stolen from the people by let's say it colonists right so insert latin american country here right yeah exactly so what we're talking about is the same again the same situation and we need to the american south needs to study simone bolivar it needs to study Zapata. It needs to study Subcommandant Marcos. It needs to study the lead revolutionary leaders of the of Latin America to learn how we can fight back and overcome our differences in the American South. We in the American South need to learn from the global South about how to fight in this situation. Yeah, I think that's that's right on, and and I think that's something that I personally. Um, we'll be doing more of and it's something that I, I encourage everyone else to as well and you know we don't talk a lot about international issues on this show or you know um foreign policy those sorts of things but i think this is a really important discussion and a really important thing to to keep in the back of your mind as we talk about the south the ways in which we are related to the global south the, the similarities and and how our working class is treated uh, the similarities in how our economies are structured, um, the similarities in how progressive movements are responded to uh, by those in power when we have them. And so I think that's really important. And something that I, I found inspiring uh, this summer at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago was hearing from workers at the uh, GM plant in Mexico who were able to kick out the corrupt union and create their own independent union and and and, you know that's that's just to kind of tie it all back into labor and and into the union movement that's what i would encourage my brothers and sisters out here uh to think about as you know we we have our concerns about jobs being off offshored we have our concerns um about globalization and free trade obviously And, and there's Unfortunately, you know, a lot of resentment towards immigration as well. Uh, But the solution is not to divide us further or to embrace xenophobia and nationalism. The solution is to work together to make all of our lives better. And when those workers in Mexico and Paraguay are organizing, that will ultimately only help us and vice versa. Uh, And so that's one of the most inspiring things about the labor movement at its best is when you see that solidarity and you see workers from all over the country cheering each other on, you know, chipping in a couple bucks here and there, sending pizza to the picket line. That's what it's all about. Remembering what we have in common and how much stronger we are when we come together. Um, So to get off my soapbox there for a second, uh, Zach, was there anything else you really wanted to, uh, to, to get out there as we kind of tie up this conversation about the South and, and where we sit in relation to the global south and the rest of the world no i i I covered everything that i wanted to cover and i appreciate you having me on and i appreciate what uh uh valley labor report does for our community and um i'm really happy to see the success y'all are having um uh it's really it's a positive it's a real positive thing we need our own media we really need our own media um and it's uh a really y'all are honest y'all are straightforward um and y'all talk to the people y'all don't um talk at the people and i appreciate y'all 
and uh you know power to the people well hell yeah zach i really appreciate that appreciate your kind words and your support um i want to give you a final chance to you know plug your websites and, and everywhere else uh, people need to go to find your work and support your work uh, but yeah, thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the for the kind words. We absolutely do need our own working class, independent media, free from corporate overlords and uh, right wing cranks, which so dominate our media landscape. And uh, we need our own bases of power, our own bases of support, our own wealth. And, and that's what you're working on. That's what we're working on. So, Zach, give us a where, where can folks find your work and, and support your work? So uh, you can find what we're doing on automotivefreeclinic.org. You can uh, go to automotivefreeclinic.org back, uh, slash fellowship to apply for the Redneck Studies Fellowship, which includes a $100 stipend. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Redneck Activist, and you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook at Zach Silverman Hyden. And you can find me on Instagram at the Mad Redneck. So uh, I'm all over social media. Come, come holler at me. Come tell me you think I'm crazy. You know, I'll talk to you. I'll talk. If, if you're not, if you're not a, a ridiculous ideologue of the left or the right, and you can have a decent, meaningful conversation with somebody without getting all pissy about it, I'll have a conversation with you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Zach. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your work. All right, man. Take care.